Hey guys, welcome to Barbarossa, Apocalypse in the East. I'm your host, Harry, and yes, this episode is stupidly late. College has been nonstop. I apologize for that. I also apologize because this episode is late and it's pretty short, but let's get into it. Last episode, if you can remember last episode, so German forces began their advance towards Leningrad in the north, where they were currently threatening to encircle Luga. Soviet attempts to counterattack south of Lake Ilmen had failed, but managed to divert the 56th Panzer Corps, slowing the German drive towards Leningrad. Further north, the German Panthers continued the push. On the left, Reinhardt's 41st Panzer Corps, on the right, the newly arrived 39th Panzer Corps and 28th Army Corps. The 1st Army Corps, not meeting significant resistance, was able to strike out and advance to the north and east, narrowing the link between Leningrad and the rest of the Soviet Union. West of Luga, the 26th Army Corps shoved back Soviet resistance along the Baltic coast. By the 25th of August, Red Army forces around Luga had been corralled into a small pocket. However, due to some combination of weakened German strength and more astute Soviet forces, most Soviet units managed to either avoid encirclement altogether or escape the pocket. And when the pocket was finally destroyed in early September, it only netted around 20,000 POWs, which was a far cry from Minsk or Smolensk or even Uman. Despite this improvement, the situation for the Northwestern Front, as well as the Northern Front, was grave. By now, German forces were no more than 40 kilometers south of Leningrad, and several major rail lines to the city had been captured. At the same time, the destruction of Soviet forces around Luga allowed the 39th Panzer Corps to leap up north, where it was approaching the Baltic coast. If the 39th was able to reach the coast, the last land connection to Leningrad would be cut. On the Soviet side, the Stavka was making desperate attempts to ensure a strong defense. On August 27th, they began deploying new troops south and southeast of the city, a task made far more difficult by German air support, approaching tanks, and a lack of convenient railroads. Among these newly deployed Soviet forces were the 52nd and 54th Armies. For the Germans, the stabilization of the situation between army groups north and south had allowed for the final and full transfer of the 39th Panther Corps, among other forces. August 27th also saw the creation of the Landgrad and Karelian fronts by splitting the northern front into two. The German plan was for the 39th Panzer Corps to encircle Landgrad from the southeast, while Panzer Group 4 attacked from the south and 18th Army from the west. They aimed to deeply penetrate remaining Soviet defenses, completely cutting off the city and starving it out. With the encirclement complete, the Panzer forces would be shifted down for the attack on Moscow. German panzer spearheads made quick work of the battered Soviet forces. On August 29th, the 39th Panzer Corps reached the Neva River, threatening to cut the last rail line into Leningrad. Remaining Red Army troops attempted to hold on, resisting ferociously, but were simply too weak. With a truly Herculean effort, Soviet troops held open a narrow corridor to the east, centered around the town of Schlüsselburg. This episode ends with those defenses hanging by a thread. For Army Group Center, they were in a precarious spot. Deprived of their armor, strenuous if clumsy Soviet attacks had pushed the weakened German forces to the brink of collapse. 
Some, such as the Ninth Army, had lost significant ground and were in danger of falling apart. All across the front, however, even though the German divisions that had managed to hold their positions had only done it at a high cost. Wanting to maintain an aggressive posture, German commanders planned a counterstroke to destroy attacking Soviet forces. General Strauss, who commanded the Ninth Army, proposed that the 7th Panzer Division strike into the right flank of Konev's 19th Army. But Konev had suspected this. It had enhanced defenses along that very flank. So, when German attacks began at 2 p.m. on August 20th, a strange time for such a thing, they encountered multiple divisions and in-depth Soviet defenses. A vicious two-day battle began, which saw the German forces take heavy casualties, but make slow progress. Over the rest of the front, continued Soviet attacks saw only a modest advance, although putting pressure on German forces. By August 22nd, the 7th Panzer Division's attack had failed and withdrew, demonstrating the skill of Konev as a commander, as well as the ability of Soviet troops to repel the enemy with sufficient preparation. On the 23rd of August, the 30th Army reported that their German enemies had launched their own counterattacks. Far more worryingly, the 22nd Army, on the far right flank of the front, reported serious problems. But Timoshenko did not realize the gravity of the situation until the 24th. By this point, not only the 22nd, but also the nearby 29th Army were heavily engaged in combat. With Soviet attention taken up by the offensives along the center and the unfolding battle near Landgrad, little thought was spared for the junction between Army Group Center and North. Worse, weeks of prior attacks had drained the 22nd Army, and it was in no position to defend against a concerted German assault. Redeployed Panzer troops, spearheaded by the 19th and 20th Panzer Divisions, smashed into the depleted infantry of the 22nd Army. Brusquely pushing aside confused resistance, advanced units reached the outskirts of Veliki Luki by day's end. Brave resistance by Soviet forces was unable to contain the assault, and by the 24th of August, most of the 22nd Army had been encircled southeast of Veliki Luki. For Timoshenko, the calamity that was occurring before him required immediate attention. He threw together the remains of the 22nd Army with whatever reserves he could find to slow the German advance. But by the 26th, German forces had destroyed the encircled troops and captured Vlikiluki, cutting a vital rail line and taking over 30,000 prisoners. A further advance threatened to cave in the right flank of the Soviet center, rendering their situation incredibly dangerous. Without sufficient forces in the area, Timoshenko was forced to pull units from his counteroffensives to patch gaping holes in the lines, which German panzer forces were currently exploiting. Finally, turning to the south. In the south, two panzer corps under Guderian's 2nd Panzer Group had recently savaged the weak central front, eventually capturing Gamel and leaving the right flank of the southwestern front exposed. After several days of rest and resupply, the 24th and 47th Panzer Corps restarted their attack on the 25th of August. Already in a precarious spot, the Soviet response was made even worse by the fact that the Central Front was also disbanded on the 25th. Its units and area of responsibility were transferred to Aramanko's Bryansk Front, but Aramanko had no chance to absorb these forces or make preparations when Guderian struck. Initial German attacks proved successful. 
With Soviet resistance spotty and inconsistent, the spearheads were able to advance up the, the Desna River on the 25th. The Desna was the main natural obstacle along the way. In doing so, they crossed into the Ukraine. No. On the German side, the poor roads proved a major problem for their motorized forces. More or less sand-filled tracks, they frequently stopped traffic and bogged down units. Even so, initial German attacks proved successful. With Soviet resistance spotty and inconsistent, the spearheads were able to advance up to the Desna River on the 25th. The Desna was the main natural obstacle along their way, and in crossing it, they also crossed into Ukraine. But without infantry, advanced units couldn't cross the long bridges that spanned the Desna, which were staunchly defended by the Red Army. On the 26th, however, some combination of Soviet ineptitude and some truly daring German assaults resulted in the seizure of bridgeheads across the river. Soviet counterattacks on the 27th were unable to reduce these bridgeheads, although they did greatly worry German commanders. Soviet units on the northern flank of the southwestern front were instructed to retreat behind the Dnieper. In spite of the opportunities they had been given, initial German crossings were remarkably small. This was due to a lack of vehicles, the result of two months of combat, a lack of oil, and the terrible roads. Guderian was deeply worried that his forces could not accomplish their goals in a timely fashion, and on August 27th, he requested reinforcements, including the 56th Panzer Corps. But with forces spread thin across the entire front, his constant pleas only got him the infantry regiment Großdeutschland. Despite Guderian's grave concerns, his forces were able to push back Red Army defenders. The 24th and 47th Panzer Corps punched a hole in Soviet defenses on the northeastern flank of the southwestern front, while the 13th, 43rd, and 53rd Army Corps caved in Soviet infantry near the city of Chernigov. Between the two, the 28th Rifle Corps, alongside other units, was engulfed on three sides. While this was going on, Romanian forces were doggedly trying to overcome the Soviet garrison in Odessa. The besieging Romanian forces outnumbered the Red Army defenders by 5 to 1 in manpower and 6 to 1 in artillery, but the poor training of the Romanians and the fanatical resistance of the Soviet coastal army made this a painstaking affair. The Romanians' first offensive had bogged down, taking heavy casualties. Their second, beginning on August 28th and lasting to September 5th, saw more success, although it was still a bloody affair. Combat devolved into a mix of urban firefights and siege warfare more reminiscent of the First World War than the Second. Ground was slowly gained at a few kilometers a day. Making things worse for the Romanians, the Soviets were able to resupply and reinforce Odessa, despite Axis air and sea efforts. In just the first month of the siege, Romanian forces took almost 50,000 casualties. Soviet losses were high as well, but, and perhaps for the first time so far, much lower than their enemies. In addition to Romanian forces and Guderian's men, German troops under Army Group South were having a bad time as well. Along much of the front, the action had calmed following the clearing of the western Ukraine. But near Dnipropetrovsk, a major industrial city along the Dnieper River, the 3rd Panzer Corps had found the bridgehead, and the city itself was taken on August 26th. Obviously of major concern to the Red Army, this salient had been the target of unceasing attacks. Many commanders would, and did conclude, that the best choice for the Germans would be an evacuation of the salient. 
While Soviet attacks wouldn't destroy the Third Panzer Corps, they would exact an inordinate toll for such a small beachhead. But several higher-ups, including Franz Halder, insisted that the breachhead be held. Most likely, he hoped that holding on to this would speed the eventual conquest of eastern Ukraine, which would allow his precious attack on Moscow to begin earlier. As Guderian's panzers ground their way south, prospects for the sweeping encirclement of the southwestern front seemed to dim. At this pace, even if the 24th and 47th had the strength to close the trap, at the pace they are moving, the Red Army would have ample time to escape. Fortunately for the Germans, Stalin remained firm in his belief that the primary focus of the German attacks was the center, towards Moscow. The recent German blows on the flanks, which were actually a pivot towards Leningrad and Ukraine, were read by Stalin as end runs around Soviet strength in the center. Of course, German commanders did not know this. That is to say, they did not know that Stalin was under misconceptions. Fearful that Kirponis' forces would escape, von Rundstedt, commander of Army Group South, ordered his forces to seize bridgeheads over the Dnieper River. Rundstedt hoped to speed up his advance and meet up with Guderian, denying Soviet units the chance to withdraw. Events from here unfold very quickly. On August 30th, Stalin ordered Aramenko to destroy Guderian's panzers, something Aramenko could not possibly do. Aramenko attempted it nonetheless. His Bryansk front began counterattacks on September 2nd, proved incapable of more than slowing Guderian down. On August 31st, the 52nd Army Corps, under Army Group South, managed to seize a crossing at Dedeivka. By September 3rd, Guderian's panzers had seized several crossings over the Desna River. The 24th and 47th Panzer Corps, positioned east of the majority of the southwestern front, was posed to trap dozens of Soviet divisions. Up in the air, the situation had turned against the Soviets on the flanks. With the diversion of German troops to Leningrad and Kiev came the diversion of large air units to support them. In the north, the VVS became massively overburdened as German attacks ramped up. Red Air Force units were outmatched and outclassed and suffered losses that were unacceptable even to the Soviets. In Estonia, Luftwaffe bombers mauled the fleet attempting to evacuate Tallinn's remaining defenders, sinking 18 ships. Tallinn would be taken a bit later. The German advance towards Leningrad forced the suspension of Soviet efforts to bomb Berlin, which was a palpable hit to morale. Moving towards Ukraine, the Germans had a tougher time. In the last week of August, the Luftwaffe effectively harried the Red Army's response, helping Guderian to cross the Desna. But the Soviet response was ferocious, both against Guderian's forces and the German bridgehead at Dnepropetrovsk. The Luftwaffe grew weak along the bend of the Dnieper, and had it not been for the Romanian, Hungarian, Italian, and Slovak pilots and planes, probably would have been powerless against the Red Air Force. To give you some indication, Luftwaffe IV had just 20 usable fighters in the last days of August. Aramanko, who played Anvel to Guderian's hammer, had an impressive complement of aircraft, albeit with poorly trained pilots. As German and Soviet forces clashed, an equally fierce battle was taking place in the skies above, Luftwaffe forces typically took these fights, but at a high cost. And if you read some of the detailed sources, 
you'll find that the Germans were losing a lot of their aces, their best pilots, and these were not easily replaceable. You can't train an ace. You can train a pilot, and I hope he'll be an ace. Aces, you have to rely on natural talent or luck or some combination thereof, so these were big losses. Anyway, in international affairs, this week is especially important. On August 25th, British and Soviet forces invaded Iran. Led by Shah Reza Pahlavi, the, the country had not joined the war, but Iran was of serious geopolitical importance to everyone. Iran bordered the Soviet Caucasian oil fields, British India, and Britain's Middle Eastern colonies. Iran itself was a major oil producer, and the British had valuable concessions there. Iran's pre-war foreign policy had been one of modernization, funded through foreign investment. To avoid excessive foreign influence, the government engaged with the UK, USSR, and Germany, hoping to pit them against each other and avoid leaning too much to any one side. On the eve of the war, Germany was Iran's single largest trading partner, and many in Iran were sympathetic to the Germans, whereas both the USSR and the UK received some bitterness due to their present or past colonial endeavors. Fearing German influence in the area, Britain demanded that Iran cease trading with Germany and expel German nationals. The Shah refused to expel German nationals, but he did begin to reduce trade with Germany. However, this was not enough for the Allies, who were becoming increasingly nervous about the prospect of a pro-German Iran. There was also less defensive motivation. At this point, the only route for British lend-lease to the USSR was through the Norwegian and Arctic seas to the White Sea port of Archangel. This was vulnerable to U-boat attacks, and it would not be viable during the winter when ports often froze over and ice in the water made travel much more difficult and precarious. However, if supplies could travel through Iran, it would be a much more consistent and safer route. To make a long story short, for all these reasons, the British and Soviets decided to invade, which they did on August 25th. Soviet troops invaded from the north, and Commonwealth forces, British, Indian, Australian, etc., from the west. The Iranian army stood no chance against mechanized forces and aircraft. They were crushed in under a week. Ceasefire was declared on August 31st, and negotiations began. To knock the story out quickly, Shah Reza Pahlavi was forced to abdicate on September 16th, and his son, Mohammad Reza Pahlavi, became Shah. He would be the last Shah of Iran. Soviet forces occupied northern Iran and British troops southwestern Iran. On September 4th, the American destroyer USS Greer was fired upon by a German U-boat, the first American ship to come under fire. The first such incident during the war, that is. Germany claimed that the Greer fired first, but a later congressional report revealed that while the U-boat had fired first, the Greer had pursued it. In any case, as a direct response, President Roosevelt ordered a shoot-on-sight policy where American ships would fire on German and Italian warships with no questions asked if they were spied. This was big because it came very close to putting America in the war. I mean, there's no warnings, no radio transmissions. So this is a big step, and I think everyone is beginning to see from Japan to Germany to Britain, maybe the U.S. least of all, that America is going to be coming into this war pretty soon, one way or another.
Anyway, despite the, shall we call it, brevity of this episode, I hope you pick up on the two major events unfolding in the East. Leningrad is very nearly encircled by land. That's the second largest city in the Soviet Union. And Guderian is posed to trap the Southwestern Front. The Soviet effort so far has been about slowing the German advance. And they have. No one can deny them that. According to German timetables, their panzer divisions should be securing the oil fields of, of Baku by now, and yet they found themselves battling near Leningrad, Smolensk, and in western Ukraine. Their forces were worn down with little hope of reinforcement. But the situation I've just described is certainly not what the Soviets were feeling on the ground. Maybe the most extreme and far-side optimists took heart in this interpretation, although, of course, they did not have access to all the information we do, but on a week-to-week basis, the kind we deal with, the Red Army has been hastily constructing defenses, most of which the Wehrmacht has smashed without little problem. When these Soviet defenses have held, poorly equipped and coordinated counterattacks by the Red Army typically did a little bit of crew casualties. It's only in the last few weeks that a major Soviet counteroffensive has been able to force the Germans back, and that too has been inconsistent and halted. As of yet, the German advance has not taken the most vital economic territories, primarily the industrial trifecta centered around Leningrad, Moscow, and eastern Ukraine, respectively. But the first and last of these are just behind the front lines, and Moscow is pretty much vulnerable. If the Germans get around to it, there's not really natural obstacles to stop them from getting very close. As we've seen from this episode, the German war machine is bruised, but it's far from broken. And that makes it unlikely that the Soviet economy will survive intact, assuming it survives at all. As counterintuitive as it may seem, the Soviet Union is running out of space. The vast forests and tundra of Siberia that make up a large majority of its landmass certainly are impressive on a map, but... They don't have the industry and agriculture to feed and equip a modern army. And in the short term, the situation will not dramatically improve either industrially or militarily. The kind of dramatic reform that the Red Army needs cannot be done under constant, brutal assault. The Wehrmacht must be exhausted before either it can be broken or the Red Army can be rebuilt. But how long will that take? Anyway... That's all for today. Thanks for listening, and again, I'd like to apologize for the delay. I'll do my best to make sure that won't happen again. If you have any questions or comments or anything like that, uh, you can send them to me at apocalypseintheeast at gmail.com. That's apocalypseintheeast at gmail.com. As usual, a link to sources as well as an animated map are in the description. And until next time, I'm Harry. And I'll talk to you later.